Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, we're going to be in Isaiah tonight. Isaiah, um, the end of the book there, going into chapter 53, from chapter 52, chapter 53. If you'll go there quickly, Isaiah 52. And there are, if there's any up here that want one or need one, uh, certainly you can... um, get an outline. Like I said, don't be intimidated. I know it's a Wednesday night and you go, there are five points on this paper and each one has three sub points. <laughs> so I know we'll get through it though. Don't worry about it. We're not going to, I'm not going to keep you here, but if I start to get too long, you can just say, let my people go Pharaoh and <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe that'll give me a hint. But Anyway, but I think it would be really good for us to look at this portion of Scripture. When we get into it here, I think you're going to recognize it very quickly because it is a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Uh, it is a, uh, what is called a servant song uh, in the Old Testament, a servant song. And there are four of these in the book of Isaiah, in the, in the later uh, part of Isaiah. Uh, one of the servant songs can be found in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. One of them can be found in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Uh, One of them's here, and then the last one is Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 6. But they all have to do with the servant, uh, which uh, was immediately, you know, probably Isaiah. But futuristically speaking, was, of course, Jesus Christ as the Messiah. These are all four things talking about and pointing to the Messiah. And certainly that is how the early church uh, saw them uh, after the resurrection of Christ. Uh, And during uh, the time that the uh, Gospels were being written, uh, many times, especially in the book of Matthew, but uh, we're going to look at a couple of passages in John as well tonight, uh, you will see where under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these Gospel writers said that this is done because Isaiah the prophet said, you know, whatever. And it was a reference back to some portion of Scripture in Isaiah. So the early church recognized them very uh, quickly as being about Messiah. Uh, And it was the way it was interpreted by Jewish people as well until Christ came because, of course, they rejected Christ as the Messiah, Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so now many Jews today look at it and say, well, these are just talking about the nation of Israel. But this particular one that we're going to look at tonight, not only is it um, timely for the week that we're in being the time between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, uh, and, and many other Christian traditions celebrate different kinds of days of the week, Monday, Thursday, and some churches do a Good Friday service and that kind of thing. Um, And so uh, there's other days between those two. But um, uh, this is a very fitting one for us because it is of the four servant songs, the one that points the most to Christ, the one that has the most uh, to do that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection uh, and hopefully we'll see that tonight as we go through it. But it's a, it's a good one for this week, and I think you'll enjoy uh, as we go through it, or I hope you will anyway. But let's go ahead and read it together, and then we'll pray and, and jump right in. Verse 13 of chapter 52 says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? To whom, of the ar- to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. The transgression of my people, he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had not, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we ask you tonight just to be with us in these few moments here together, God, and help us to be reminded again of the wonderful and mighty act of Christ, God, and of the sacrifice, the crucifixion, the resurrection, God, and during this time that, God, we would again have a renewed uh, um, love and a renewed uh, commitment to you, God, because of Uh, Jesus Christ, and because of the things done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we see here in the beginning, there are five sections. There are three verses per per section, okay? And so that's how we're kind of go through it. Back in verse 13 of the end of chapter 52, we see, first of all, the preeminence of the servant. It begins right away with a description of who the servant will be. My servant shall deal prudently. He'll be extolled, exalted, and extolled. And that's a very important thing there. Prudent, he will be righteous. He will deal wisely and righteously with his people. And the exalted and the extolled is important because it is exactly the same two words that if you were to go back in Hebrew to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1 where it says that Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, those words there are exalted and extolled here in verse 13. And so right off the bat, we see that the servant is made the same as God. It is God. The servant and Jesus Christ being 100% God, 100% man is the one that is spoken of here. It is not the nation of Israel. It is, in fact, the Messiah. And that is a very important point. Isaiah 6.1 says that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And that is exalted and extolled. And so the servant is God. It is not the nation of Israel. And that is who the Messiah is. We see in the next verse a description of the suffering 
a description of what's going on. And this, of course, in verse 14 has to do with uh, an observer of the crucifixion after the fact. A person who was looking on and seeing what's going on there, that his visage was marred. His form was more marred than the sons of men. This is a physical appearance of Christ during the crucifixion. This is another clue that's pointing us to that awful day. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. And then Psalm twenty-two, seventeen: I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. That psalm is a messianic psalm that Pastor Jason took us through uh, many months back. Uh, but, but it points to this as well, reminding us that Christ experienced incredible suffering on the cross. That when that cross was lifted up and dropped into the hole that held it in place, his body would have lurched forward and his shoulders would have come out of joint. And that because of the beating he ensued with the cat of nine tails, the whip, that his body would literally be torn open. It's very possible that you could literally see bones poking through where he had been ripped open by the whip. I know that's kind of grim. I see faces. I know it's really gross. But that is the idea there of how bad this punishment was. And he's unrecognizable as being a human being while being on the cross. But we see a very important point in verse 15. Verse 15 starts with the word, so which in this case is a conjunction here being used to link verse 14 and 15 together. You could also use the word therefore. You could also use the phrase, and for this reason. For this reason is why he was marred. This is the reason why he was unrecognizable, so that he could sprinkle. Look at the rest of verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. He went through this so that he could be a sin sacrifice and an offering for the sins of the nations so they could experience salvation through Jesus Christ. That was the reason why. And of course, this harkens back to the priest every year, once a year would come into the holiest of holies in the temple or in the tabernacle before the temple was built and would sprinkle the blood of a bull on the Ark of the Covenant as a sin offering once a year. And Jesus Christ is the sin offering once for all. And he has done this so that he could offer himself as that sacrifice. And the nations would be sprinkled. I want to go to Romans really quickly here. Romans 16, the very, very end of this. Because this is important. This is connecting here. Paul connects uh, uh, Christ to this uh, passage of Scripture here. At the very end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Because if you notice in verse 15, of course, the kings will shut their mouths. They, they will consider that which they would not seen they will con- and what they had not heard. They'll be c- considered. They'll be told these things. It's a mystery in the Old Testament. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 16. Verse 25 says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of prophets, according to the commandment, commandment excuse me, of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. The mystery that Paul talks about at the end of Romans is that Christ would be the one who would offer himself that for all. And that those, even Gentiles, all nations, not just the Jewish nation, but that all nations would have an opportunity to be saved because of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Next, we see the person of the servant. Going back with me to Isaiah. 
In the first verse of chapter 53, the person of the servant. And it begins talking to us with the unbelief in the Messiah. The unbelief in the Messiah. Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Go to John chapter 13. People did not believe on Jesus Christ despite all the things that were going on. Despite all the miracles he performed, despite the many ways in which he was showing himself to be the Messiah, people did not believe him. And so in John uh, chapter 13, or excuse me, John chapter 12, I typed it wrong twice. John chapter 12 and verse 37 and 38 says this, But though he had done, many, done so many miracles before them, he had performed miracles before them, Yet they believed not on him. Why? Here it is, verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so John, writing his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is connecting this back. The people refused to believe in Jesus Christ, even though he had performed the miracles. He had done so to show the people the condition of the kingdom when he was there. If you look at the miracles that Jesus performed and you look at the descriptions of how the kingdom would be, like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where there's lame or healed and blind and sick and those that are possessed with devils, and even the fact that uh, Jesus calms the storm when the disciples are on the boat, even those miracles all are things that are signs of the kingdom. And they had the king with them and they still refused to believe in him. And so he has not believed in his miracles. In verse 2, back in Isaiah 53, the characteristics of the Messiah shows his humble beginnings. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. The idea there of humble backgrounds, humble beginnings. And we certainly see that. Born to Joseph and Mary, uh, announced by the angels and the shepherds were there, but born in a manger, were born in a, in a cattle stall, basically laid in a manger, and, and a very humble beginnings, a carpenter's son uh, on earth anyway. And so uh, not a lot there, and, and, and no uh, physical attractiveness necessarily, as, as I said here, nothing that from a human standpoint would draw people to him. You know, when we are thinking about people or things that draw our attention, it's people who have a really beautiful appearance on the outside, People with a very charismatic personality, perhaps, or some other thing, humanly speaking, often draws us to pay attention and give heed to somebody in this world. Those things would not be true of Jesus Christ. Here's how people would be drawn to him. Go to John 12 again. John chapter 12. Here's how people would be drawn to him. In verse 32 and 33. And Jesus says this, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. And it's through his death and through crucifixion, through the Holy Spirit, that people would be drawn to him, but not because of any physical appearance or any kind of charismatic thing there that we, from a human standpoint, would say, I'm going to pay attention to that person. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, we also see his rejection. He's despised and rejected of men. Acquainted with grief. He's rejected. And connecting verse 2 and 3 together, the idea of rejection here is the same way that if you had a plant that began to grow up 
and then it began to get withered because you forgot to water it a couple of days and it started to die, you might just say, well, that one's dead. Yep, I'm going to pull it up out of the ground and maybe start over again. Now, that may not be the case for all plants or whatever, but it'd be the case at my house anyway. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> start over. But that's the idea of being rejected. No more thought about rejecting Jesus Christ than, than rejecting, you know, a, a, a withered up plant. No more thought was given to, that, to, to, to rejecting Jesus Christ than, than to, to pulling something out of the ground that was dead. The leaders rejected. And I'll, I'll give you this reference, John 7, 52. But here we see one of the divisions in the book of John where the religious leaders were arguing about whether Jesus was truly from God, whether he was truly a prophet. And if you read in the end of, end of John chapter 72, you see that Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus by night in, verse, in chapter 3 of the book of John, stands up in the midst of this argument and says, guys, we've got to at least hear him out. We've got to at least give him a chance to explain himself to us. And here's the response of the religious leaders in John 7, 52. They answered and said unto him, unto Nicodemus, they're talking Nicodemus, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. That was their answer. There's no prophets in Galilee. And the religious leaders rejected Jesus Christ. The people rejected. The people did not believe. The religious leaders also rejected Jesus. He is a man of sorrows, rejected by men. The next section of this passage is the passion, the passion of the servant. And at the beginning, we saw how the verses start out talking about the servant as being the same description, the same uh, 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 adjectives were used to describe the servant as are used to describe God. But I think these three verses here, verse 4, 5, and 6 in this section, probably are the most important in showing us that this servant song is about Jesus Christ. It cannot be about anybody else but him. Because he bears our sin. Look at verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross for our sins and for my sins and for your sins. But the people of his, of his day when he was on earth believed very much that he was getting his own punishment for his own fault, what he did wrong, which he did no wrong. He committed no sin. He did no wrong. And, and, and as we come into these three verses, we need to just take that step back and realize that this, this is why Jesus came, to bear our sin. And Jesus had to come as a, as a man, 100% God and 100% man. We, we kind of talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class on Sunday, but, but the idea there is so important because only as 100% God could he take on the sins and wrath of God. And only as 100% man could he experience the things that we experience, to be tempted in the same way that we are, to have physical suffering in the way that we have physical suffering. But here's the thing. He had to die as a man, 100% man, in order for us to have everlasting life. And so he was 100% man, 100% God. As a very important necessity. We're born sinners with a sin nature. And this is a very important point that Paul makes in the book of Romans and connects it. And I'll give you something free for nothing here. This is why it's important that we have an accurate record of the book of Genesis and that we maintain a conservative viewpoint of it. Amen. Because both Jesus and Paul with important doctrines, looked back to a literal Adam and a literal Eve and creation 
to build very important doctrines in the Christian faith. And so I shy away quite a bit from those who say, well, maybe there's some evolution. Maybe there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I don't go for that at all because there are some very important doctrines that Paul and Jesus Christ both built on a literal interpretation of Genesis. He carried our griefs and our sorrows and our sin and not his own. Verse 5, he bears our punishment. We begin to see more descriptions of the things that Jesus endured on the cross. He's wounded for our transgression. Some of you may have a modern translation that actually says the word pierced. But wounded in the King James is the same thing, the same idea, pierced. And Jesus Christ certainly was pierced, was he not? In his hands and his feet with nails and his side with a spear, he was pierced for our transgressions, as some translations read. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. This phrase here I'm going to focus on because it's important. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. His punishment, his enduring that punishment that was not his own, but it was our punishment, is what brings us peace. Romans 5.10 tells us that before we're saved, we are enemies. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Peace is obtained because the punishment was put on Christ, because the wrath of God was placed on Christ on the cross. Verse 6, we see still his, uh, our, our attitude. We are like sheep. We've gone astray. We've done whatever we want to do. We've acted in a way that we wanted to act. We've done things that we wanted to do. But instead, the iniquity of us is laid on Jesus Christ. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that word iniquity there is a very important word because it can be used in these ways. It can mean perversity. It can mean depravity, iniquity, guilt of punishment, or punishment for iniquity. Those are things that were laid on Christ on the cross. I want you to go to Matthew with me, Matthew chapter 27. God laid our depravity and our punishment of sin on Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 27. Some of you are here and remember that, um, and, and we're still grateful for it, we had the opportunity in 2019 to go to the SING conference, Keith and Chris and Getty. And I heard John MacArthur speak on this passage, and he said a, very, a thing that I had never thought of before, but I cannot forget it since. In Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, it says, now from the sixth hour, Jesus is on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this is the point that he made. What was going on in the three hours of darkness? What was going on? He took on the sin. God was putting his wrath and punishment that we deserved on Christ. That's what's going on in those three hours. And he could endure that because of 100% God and 100% man. And that is why these verses, I think of all the verses in this servant song, indicate to us that this is about Jesus Christ. This fulfilled in him. And that is why he came. 
Going back with me to Isaiah 53 now, the next set of three verses, 7, 8, and 9, show us the passivity of the servant and the way in which he responded to those who accused him. We first see his silence. Look at verse 7. He's oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. As far as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And that, verse 7, a little bit of verse 8. Now, if you were to go to John, the Gospel of John, and read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you would see that under oath, Jesus did affirm his deity. You know? But those accusations, excuse me, they were false. They were false witnesses brought in against him, and he didn't answer the accusers. He didn't answer the accusations. He remained silent. In Luke chapter 23, we see that Pilate and Herod, neither one of them wanted to give any kind of punishment to Jesus. And you read in Luke chapter 23 that Herod just wanted Jesus to come to the palace so he could see some kind of miracle or something, some kind of entertainment real quick for his palace. He didn't really care about who Jesus really was. But all through that trial, all through the mocking and the beating, he remained silent against the accusations. And then looking at verse 8 some more, we begin to see for the first time that these sufferings, these wounds, these piercings would eventually lead to his death. This is the first time that death is specifically mentioned here. Starting from where I left off in verse 8, And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was cut off the land of the living, that he would actually die for the sins of the people. And that word generation is very important. I think that we know from, on the Wednesday night crowd especially, we know from the Old Testament and even from the New Testament that there are a lot of genealogies in the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so, right? And the two in the New Testament, of course, are about Jesus. But they stop at Jesus. Because here's what this means with the genealogy, the generation. Who shall declare his generation? Jesus had no physical children. Jesus had no physical children. And he was cut off from the land of the living. So verse 8 tells us that he was going to die childless. And to a Jewish person, that was incredibly... And it continues with his rejection and being despised and the grief in verse 8. But I want you to remember verse 8. Because in a moment, we're going to see God changes the story. God changes the story of verse 8. Verse 9 tells us about his grave. He was made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now, here's the tradition and custom of the day. When you were crucified, you were executed as a criminal, you were put into a mass grave with all the other criminals. That's where he went. Probably what happened to the two thieves that were crucified to Jesus. Probably got thrown in a mass grave with all the other executed criminals. But what happened with Jesus, right? Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, came and begged for the body of Jesus, and he laid him in his own tomb. And so Jesus was not only counted in the grave with the wicked, but he was also with the rich in his death. He was going to be buried in a mass grave, but because Joseph of Arimathea came along, he was placed. And here's an important thing. It was an unused tomb, never been used before. Still empty, right? Why? Because the answer from the tomb that day was what? He's not here. He is risen, as he said. He's alive forevermore. Finally, this evening, we see the portion of the servant. 
as we wrap it up, the last three verses, 10 through 12. And this is where it gets really good. And we did talk about this a little bit on Sunday night, so if you missed it, we'll kind of get a little bit of a recap. But some people have said that we need to be careful with the gospel and kind of tone it down a little bit because if you talk about this punishment in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that makes God sound like some kind of divine child abuser. You know, he takes pleasure in, in hurting his own kid, and who does that? Okay. But here's the idea. Rejection of God being pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ changes the gospel. It weakens the gospel. And we saw that on Sunday night as well. Even back to the garden, there was a need for an innocent sacrifice and a work of God's righteousness. And we see in Hebrews 9.22, almost all things by the law are purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. Since think back to that garden, Adam and Eve, when it was discovered what they did, they went and made fig aprons and clothes out of leaves. That was their work of righteousness. That was their work of righteousness. And there are people today that still try to work their righteousness. They have a works-based religion or they have a false religion, some kind of cult where they've manipulated the gospel in some way that is not in the scripture. And they're trusting in what they can do in order for salvation. It's their work of righteousness. Well, what did God do? took animals and made clothes for Adam and Eve. He clothed them in his work of righteousness. And those who accept Jesus Christ are clothed in his work of righteousness, not our own. Paul said, all my works are filthy rags. All the things I try to do are, are filthy rags. And so God is pleased by the offering of Jesus Christ. Because it is the perfect expression of his love for people. God is pleased with the offering of Jesus Christ as body and soul because it's the perfect expression of his love. The suffering and death of Messiah would justify many. We see that in verse 11. His travail, look at verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the travail. That's talking about the servant, the Messiah. And that word there is the idea of a woman in childbirth or giving birth to a child. Now, there's a lot of pain that goes along with that, and I obviously don't know that from personal experience, but, but there is. But what happens when it's all over? There's joy, right? Because there's a baby, and there's new life, and it's exciting. Do you know why this brings joy? Because though Jesus has no physical children, there are spiritual children of God who are those who accept. Jesus Christ is Savior. Verse 10, he shall see his seed. Those who accept Jesus Christ as Savior, that's who that's talking about right there. Flips the script from verse 8. Verse, and then the next part there says, he shall prolong his days. Talking about the resurrection. He's not cut off from the land of the living. He shall prolong his days. He's raised again. To, he's raised again. And because he is raised again, we have the hope of being raised again. God's wrath is satisfied in the offering of Jesus. And this is important. We'll kind of start wrapping it up here with this idea. God's wrath is satisfied in the offering of Jesus. We've already talked about how before we're saved, we are the enemies of God. The wrath of God abides on those who are unsaved. And at one time in our life, if before salvation, the wrath of God abided on us. 
And God's wrath abides on all people in their sin. But those who come under the shadow of the cross, we sang about it tonight. The name of our Easter cantata, the Lord willing, is the shadow of the cross. There's a song in the thing called the shadow of the cross. And those that fall under the shadow of the cross, they don't have the wrath of God abiding on them anymore because they're saved. Because Jesus Christ took the wrath for them on the cross. And they they are saved. They are forgiven of their sins and redeemed and reconciled back to God. But those who reject him still have the wrath on him. God is satisfied in this offering because it pleased God because it justifies many. And now we see the position of the servant. Go to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Jesus is exalted because of his obedience. Isaiah said, or the book of Isaiah says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured his soul out to death. Philippians 2.9 tells us the position of Jesus Christ now in heaven. Philippians 2.9, let me get there myself. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ's obedience he is exalted because of his obedience, and he is high and lifted up. He is in the right hand of the Father. And he has made intercession for those who literally were there crucifying him. In Luke 23, 34, we see that Jesus prays this. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. As he was being nailed to the cross, he was interceding for those And now, Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And as the verse at the very end of Isaiah uh, uh, chapter 53 there uh, tells us that he is making intercession. And he still is there on the right hand, exalted, high and lifted up, making intercession for those who have accepted him as Savior. So looking at this servant psalm tonight, most clearly pointing to Jesus, his work on the cross. I hope that you can say that you have accepted Christ as your Savior. And if not, I pray that you would have had a renewed uh, uh, understanding of Christ's work on the cross for you tonight by looking at this servant song. And if you are here and you are saved, I hope that this gives you, again, as it gave me, uh, a renewed sense of, of, of remembering why we celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day by the way we live our lives. And every Sunday, the first day of the week, we worship. But I think it's very important during Easter, this time of the year, that we can really take a moment and focus in on the finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. And so I hope that night that that has given you uh, that opportunity to remember and to be reminded about that. And that as you come to Easter Sunday, uh, the Lord willing, Uh, we'll have a renewed understanding of why we can celebrate that.